Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews, insights, project management, leadership trainings and lessons learned from the field of healthcare to improve the delivery of your projects and business performance. Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Hussein Gandhi. Our paths have crossed because he's too a fellow podcaster. He has the EGP Podblast and they also have a YouTube channel. Dr. Gandhi is a GP and a primary care network clinical director amongst many other things. And today, why I wanted to speak to him is because a while ago, he had posted a question on his social media asking his connections What is more important to you? Increase time with your professional and continuity with your medical professional or increased access. I too asked my connections and the majority of people said they wanted increased access. So what we discussed today is actually, do we really want increased time? Do we just want to see anybody or do we want to see somebody that really, really knows us and knows about our conditions? And if that information is not viable to be held by one person, how it can effectively be managed through a team approach. We also talked about us as patients and our role in accessing the system appropriately and giving us a gentle reminder of, with winter approaching, probably when when we don't need to go and see the GP. <laughs> Our conversation then progressed into... Dr. Gandhi as a leader and how he's managed to take on lots of positions. It sounds like he was volunteered, but you don't get volunteered for things if you're not highly thought of. But on the flip side, Dr. Gandhi talked about the importance of saying no. And if you don't have the credibility, you know, start small. It doesn't have to be a big bang. And gave the permission for people like me and people like you, if you're not in that position yet, just go for it anyway. Dr. Gandhi said he actually does like change. He likes looking at the systems, likes fixing things. So when I asked him, what one piece of advice would you give to somebody leading a change? His advice was, look for that opposing view. Look for that one person that's got quite a lot to say about it and see things from their perspective and see if that can provide a good starting point to build on to understand what resistance may be also provides the opportunity for you to consider things that you may not have considered. So when you meet that opposing voice, see it as a good thing, see it as an opportunity rather than being, you know, defeated or demoralized or just ignoring them. Dr. Gandhi gave us some examples of how they're trying to address the issue of access and continuity and spoke to us about new roles being implemented and being brought into primary care. And what is needed to enable the effective use of technology to support some of these tricky issues. So the whole point of the Business of Healthcare podcast is to give you guys a bit of a sneak behind the scenes of what happens within primary care, within community, within secondary care, within the third sector, within management consultancies. We have talked to suppliers and technology companies to really give you an idea of some of the challenges that they have to face. And I hope you come away with ideas 
tips you can relate to what these guys are saying and hopefully a little bit of hope that there are some fantastic fantastic leaders out there looking at these issues and trying to address them the best they can with what they've got. I'd love to know what your key takeaways are from this interview and please I'd be really really grateful if you liked it and shared it. Enjoy! Hi, Gandhi. How are you doing? I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm great. Thank you. Could you give yourself a little bit of an introduction to some of our listeners that may not be aware of what you do? Sure. So I'm Dr. Sane Gandhi, but more people tend to know me by my avatar kind of thing of Dr. Gandalf. So I'm a GP, a partner in Nottingham. I'm also a GP trainer. Uh, I've been here for about Come up to seven and a half years now after moving down from Yorkshire where I trained. I have a lot of hats, unfortunately, so I'm going to try and list these as quickly as I can. First and foremost, most people probably know me for is I run a platform called eGP Learning. It's designed to try and help clinicians, GPs, primary care, that kind of stuff in terms of technology-enhanced primary care and learning. And that's various things as a website, as a YouTube channel in particular, where I put a lot of my content every week. And a podcast that I do with my colleague Andy is eGP Learning Podblast. So that's, again, trying to help people understand technology in, in primary care. I'm also a national representative to council for the RCGP, thankfully elected by my peers, and also the treasurer for a group called GP Survival, LMC representative, PCN clinical director, and probably about five other hats as well that I can't quite remember. But if anybody wants to check them out, um, if you check out my website, egplin.co.uk slash contact slash profile, you'll be able to see all my declarations and stuff. So how do you find the time to do all of this stuff? <laughs> One, I'm, people comment, I've always got the internet plugged into my brain, particularly my wife who hates the fact that I spend so much time online, which is not good, I must admit, but I'm much better than I used to be. And secondly, I probably don't sleep as much as people tend to do, but then I tend to be quite productive as well. So I'm one of those people that can get things done quite quickly when I need to. And definitely in terms of structuring things, I think I'm getting better at doing that as well. So I know kind of your passion is technology Mm -hmm. and we'll probably come on to that. But one of the things that kind of attracted me to you is I've seen you on, we both kind of follow each other on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And I think it was around the summertime, you posted a question where you asked your connection Mm-hmm. What was more important if they if they had to choose one, if it was if they had to choose between increased access to their kind of their medical professional mm-hmm. or increased time with their medical professional? Mm-hmm. And I just I wanted to know what was the response? I thought that question was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixed response, and I kind of anticipated that being the, the key thing. So the reason I asked it was a couple of four. One, we're trying to look at the way that we offer appointments in my own practice, but also as a, a clinical director, trying to understand what the, the motives for people wanting appointments and stuff is to try and make systems that hopefully can manage that better for practices. There's no question that general practice is really struggling right now. The demand is astronomical for practices to deal with, and there are systems out there that may help. But they always come down to this question uh, inevitably of access versus continuity, as I like to call it. So do you see somebody when you want to see them or do you see the person you want to see? And that may not always align. So it's trying to understand what people feel is the more important thing. I know from the government's perspective, access is always the key thing they talk about. It's on every quota, target, that kind of thing. And even as clinical areas and networks and stuff, we're being advised, you know, we need to look at access because that's what people see as a problem. But I think the general view of the profession is that actually access isn't the thing that we need to focus on. It's continuity. It is making sure that people see the right person for the right reason at the right time. And seeing somebody that knows you is often so much more valuable 
than just seeing somebody. And I think that's the question we have to answer. And it's a debate I really do feel we need to have as a public, you know, and, and as a population. We, we need to have that discussion. And this was my attempt to try and open that door, shall we say. So I asked my connections, mm-hmm. and 80% of them got really good, probably the best response I've ever got on any sort of social media post. I put out mm-hmm. a survey monkey link, and 80% came back and said they wanted increased access. Yeah. And I think if you ask that question, that's what people will always say. That they want to see someone when they want to see them. But if you ask people that have, for example, particular cohorts, if you ask people with chronic health conditions, if you ask people that, you know, have see people on a regular basis and have challenges, they will often say they'd rather prefer continuity. And if you look at all the evidence, the evidence is pretty good at saying that actually continuity is what leads to better health outcomes. It's not access. Because otherwise people bounce around the system and, you know, a lot of our, our clinical colleagues will understand this concept. There are patients that will have four or five contacts with clinical services in the space of one illness that didn't really need to. If they just seen someone that could have spent a tiny bit more time with them that actually knew them, then that would probably would have been sorted a lot more effectively and a lot quicker. And I think that's part of the challenge that we really need to deal with with our healthcare system because there is unfortunately a lot of systems a lot of processes in place that just effectively mean that people do bounce around a lot and don't often get the outcome that they should do straight away it's one of the reasons why A&Es are flooded you know because people can't get into their gp people want to see their gp but to be honest we're a limited resource we're a finite resource and seeing us you know seeing me for example is not always going to be your available option because you don't have the time to see everybody that wants to see me. How do we square that circle? So speaking about my own experience, I've got three children and Mm -hmm. two of them have got long-term conditions. Mm So in a hospital setting, I can So one of my children has got lymphotic syndrome and I live about an hour and a half away from that hospital when she relapses. So Mm -hmm. when we think Layla's about to relapse, I will message the team at the Evelina. I can email, I can send a message that she gets a page. Mm-hmm. I'll get quite a quick response back, you know, do mm-hmm. this, do that. Well, how do you feel? Do you want to bring her in? Can you take her to the local hospital? Mm-hmm. That happens really, really quickly. And I feel like as a result, and maybe it's different because she does have a long-term condition, mm-hmm. the, the easier access I have, the less time I need. Because mm-hmm. if I didn't have that quick access, I'd have to get her on the train, have to take her out of school, yep. go all the way up there. We might have a 20 minute appointment for, mm-hmm. my, for the nephrologist and you to say, she's all right, Tara. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, and because we have that, we, which is enabled by technology, because we have yep. that quick access, I don't need as much time. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of parts to, to look at from that perspective. So one, you mentioned this was obviously around a chronic condition. So as I mentioned earlier, that continuity, that information you get from a team that knows you, that's so much more valuable. So you mentioned the specialist team that has most likely a lot of information about your daughter in terms of her health issues and where she sits in that chronic condition. So they have a better understanding because they have all of that information as to where she is when she's on a good day, where she's probably is on a bad day based on the information you've also provided. So they can make that decision better because they've got that information. Contrast that, for example, with the walking center. If you had access to a walking center and you went there with that kind of information, would they have all of that information? I 
probably say not. Unfortunately, all of our healthcare systems don't work so well when it comes to interoperability at this point. Hopefully, that's something we will see significantly improve, and that is hands down one of the biggest changes that needs to happen. But I guarantee you, if you had access, so if you had access to a clinician and went into a walk-in centre, they may not be able to deal with that as effectively as the team that knew you that has that information. The other part that is important to remember as well is when it comes to that access, you know, they can make that decision because they know your daughter effectively and they can give you that response. I guess the second part as well, because this is a team that you've seen several times, you also trust the information they're giving you. And that I think has huge value in terms of the information they're able to give you because you have that relationship with you, because you know that they are giving you advice based on knowing your daughter better. You trust their advice a lot more effectively, even though they haven't seen her. And this is one of the key things that I think a lot of people really struggle with. So we are moving towards a health system that uses a lot more things like digital triage, telephone triage, where we don't physically see the person necessarily. That may change with video consultations, but still some, a lot of people feel that they need to be examined to have a clear outcome. You know, they need to be seen. And actually that's not the case for a lot of things. You know, a, a good clinician that knows you can often give you clear advice without necessarily seeing the person. There are definitely times when that's not true. Let me be absolutely clear on that point. But someone that knows you, that knows your chronic health conditions, they can give you much clearer advice and you are more likely to trust that advice because you've got that continuity of relationship. And I would argue that's what's making you more reassured. Not necessarily just the access. The access helps, the quick answer. But if that was given to you by somebody that you've never seen before, that you've never really had great contact with, would you honestly say you would trust their advice better than somebody that you'd had to wait a little bit longer that you knew would give you that trust. So what is the answer? I think this is the challenge. I don't know if there is an answer. And the reason why I say this is our health system at the moment is geared based on systems that allow people to have an appointment, ideally, when they want it to be. The problem is it's not resourced or funded in a way that allows that to happen effectively. There are definitely some places where it works better than others. And there are definitely populations where it works better than others. And we are seeing change happen in the system. So there are definitely practices, networks, and that kind of stuff that are trying to do things that work really, really well. And there are some places where unfortunately it may not work as well. I think technology has the opportunity to significantly change this. Not maybe in the way that a lot of people expect. So video consultations being the saving grace of access, I don't see that being, you know, the case. Actually, I think it's... Well, so a lot of people think that video consultations will mean that we can see people a lot more effectively and we can increase access. Doesn't change the fact that the number of GPs around, the number of clinicians around, and the actual time that we have isn't really changing. We're just changing the, the mode that people come to us. So yes, we improve convenience for patients with video consultations because they don't have to worry about travel and, and that kind of stuff. But it doesn't change the fact that a consultation still takes however long a consultation takes, whether I see you through a video interface or whether I see you face-to-face in my room, the time you spend with me is still the same amount of time. Yeah. So, so, so that out, that resource doesn't change. Definitely convenience, you know, contact, that kind of stuff. That's better for patients. Some people talk about digital triage systems being able to help with outcomes. Again, that comes down to whether or not the person trusts the advice they've been given. So if you contact your practice, say you've got a cough or a cold and the computer algorithm that helps to support you says, you're fine, self-care, here you go, go to the pharmacy. You don't trust that. That person's likely to go to a walking center, go to the A&E because they don't trust the advice because they're still not being seen. That part of things, I don't think digital aspects will help significantly. There are some people that will feel, yep, okay, fair enough. I've got some advice. I'm happy to try that. 
there are definitely cohorts of patients where that will not make any difference whatsoever. What I think will change things is interoperability. Our IT systems in the NHS, unfortunately, are woefully inadequate when it comes to interoperability. You know, I went to a meeting the other day where I heard that our local hospital trust has over 150 systems for booking patients into an appointment. And the reason why they can't integrate them is because so many. I mean, that's ridiculous. 150, you know. You know, general practice has you know, me logging into my desk. Yeah, when I want to see patients, I have off the top of my head at least five different systems I have to log into to access the patient information. And when I'm requesting investigation and test, there are four different options I need to consider when I'm doing that. This kind of process is what takes up time and it's what takes up resources. And more importantly, it's what makes the, the bloat in the system. And as a result of that, that's where we're losing available time that we can spend with patients. That's where you know people don't have access. You know, And that's definitely a thing that needs to change. And interoperability, I think, will significantly improve that. Are you in a position within your immediate area to influence and change that? Or does it have to be a big system change? I think it's both. I think there needs to be system changes in the way that people approach things and there needs to be enablement for that to happen. Uh, for example, my, I know in my local area, we're about to hopefully have a digital system provided for practices that will mean that we can look at some of these systems a lot more effectively. There's clearly the education and training that needs to come with that. And that's not potentially provided by some of the funds and all that kind of stuff that we're talking about. So this is stuff that's come from the five year forward view funding, which was five years ago. That's now materializing. Yay, that's how our NHS works, you know? But, you know, that will hopefully give the practices the resource. But giving systems, you know, giving practices, giving hospitals the resource is not just the answer. There's also the clinician anxiety about using it. And then there's the bigger challenge, the patient anxiety about using these systems. There has to be that piece of work that shows patients how to use these. Otherwise, they'll go back to the system that's the easiest for them, which is either walking up to the practice door or picking up the phone to contact the practice and saying, I want an appointment, whether they need one or not. And and that's the challenging part to help people understand. So in thinking about patients outside of digital, Mm -hmm. what role do I have as a patient and a carer? What is my role in going to the GP? When do I go? When do I not? When do I go to the pharmacist? Mm -hmm. I feel like in my job at the moment, I... Like, I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll never go to the GP. I don't want to be one of those people that bothers you guys. Yeah. I I think part of the challenge with this is that there is never an easy answer. And I I could say something here and people take that as rote and and therefore clearly that won't apply to absolutely everybody because based on your health issues, based on your individual circumstances, all this can change. I guess general stuff. So, you know, coughs and colds, we're moving into winter. Coughs and colds are going to be common and frequent. You know, if you've had a cough for a few hours, realistically, you probably don't need to see a GP, if I'm being honest. I'm pretty sure I can say that for the majority of the patient population. And unfortunately, you may, you know, listeners may be thinking, what the hell is he talking about? I've had three of those consultations just this week. Patients that have had a cough for literally a few hours have insisted on being seen because they feel they need to be. Patients that have had a very mild temperature for a few hours feel they need to see a doctor. And there is significantly this piece of education that needs to be done around self-care when it comes to common, simple health issues. Because actually, I think we've gone so far down the line that everything could be cancer, everything could be sepsis, everything could be the worst case scenario. And, and definitely at times, the internet doesn't help. I'm actually a big fan of patients looking up things on their internet and stuff because I help think it helps them be more informed. But the problem with that is that all these systems are very risk averse and they will often give you the worst case scenario first. 
And then that builds into your mind that I've got the worst case scenario and I have to be seen. And then that's where conflict comes. You know, that's where patients say, well, you have to see me. All right. Well, actually what you've told me, that sounds okay. I don't feel I need to see. No, no, but you have to see me. You have to, you know, I have those discussions on a daily basis at the moment. And actually, do we need to? Do we need to have some better self-care? Like you said, signposting services. You know, our pharmacist colleagues um, are actually very good at helping people when it comes to minor illnesses and that kind of thing and and advising you in terms of treatments and simple things that you can do. One-on-one for all of its faults, and it has a few, I'll be honest. You know, the call and ambulance for almost everything is an issue. I think there needs to look at, and people don't want to look at that for whatever reason that may be. And I, I will agree it is better than it used to be, but that definitely needs looking at. And more importantly, you know, our emergency departments, people need to understand they are emergency departments. They're not the place to go just because you can't get an appointment somewhere else because that's not helping you. That's not helping the system. And ultimately, you're still going to wait. And often they end up telling you that you just have to go back to your GP or whatever anyway, which is pointless for most people because it just creates angst and conflict. So I know you're not, it's not one easy answer. Mm-hmm. In your role and within your your network, what are you guys doing to try to address some of this stuff? So I think there's various things we need to look at. So from a national perspective, I think interoperability has to be a massive part of it and definitely improving of resources. We're in the midst of an election process at this point. God knows where that's going to lead us to. So but we'll find out obviously in a few weeks time. I think in terms of more locally, so as a clinical director for, for our network, I think there are changes that we can see in, in hopefully in a short space of time as well. So we're about to have social prescribers come online in our area. And I think these will have significant benefit to helping our patient population understand the fact that actually how healthy you are is not just about your medical health. And this is a key thing. I think in modern society, we really need to recognize that actually your health is determined by so many other things outside of your physical medical health things like housing, things like your environment, things like your, even your education and, and that kind of stuff. Um, how far you are from a bus stop apparently has implications in terms of how healthy you can potentially be. You know, those kind of things are things that need to be looked at. But as well as that, the social aspect, the connections that you have, the richness of the relationships that you have, those are the things that will actually keep people healthy not as much as, I guess, your physical health, but they play a huge part of it. You know, the support systems you have, the, the people you can turn to when you're feeling low, for example, having a chat with somebody. Part of the reason I think general practice is significantly overrun is because of the loss of the family nucleus, because of people not relying on other kind of roles, you know, people that they used to look up to, like their religious leaders, like the community leaders, or even just family. Because they've lost that, a lot of people are t- turning to systems to help them, like their GP. And I, I can guarantee you many of my clinical colleagues out there will have stories and, and experiences where patients they've seen have simply just been a counselling session because that person doesn't have somebody else to talk to. Now, that's fine to a degree, but if that means that then I can't see the patient that's potentially having a heart attack or the patient that's potentially having a significant health issue or delaying somebody else from seeing me because they may have cancer... Is that the right kind of way that we need to use systems? And potentially things like social prescribers may help with that because they may help those patients that are struggling with those more wider determinants of health a bit more effectively than, to be honest, I can because I can't do much more of that. And if you want an example, my favorite one, so this is one of my colleagues in my network who gave me this one, I can really help a person with diabetes in terms of managing their clinical health condition, advising them about you know the treatments they need to take, For example, they may need to use insulin. I can prescribe that to them and I can enable them to have that. How they store that insulin 
where they keep that insulin, what they do with it, I'll be honest, not much I can do about that. Whether they have a fridge to store that insulin in, I can't do anything about that. And that will have more of an impact than them actually potentially even having access to the insulin. Because if they can't store it, then what's the point? So could I ask, what does that look like in practice? So I'm a patient, I go to the reception desk and say, I'd like to see the doctor. Mm -hmm. Tell me what happened. How do I end up seeing a social prescriber? What questions am I asked to determine whether I come to see you or a social prescriber? So whether systems will allow us to have that from the point where you talk to a receptionist, that may or may not be ideal, if I'm being honest. I think that particular role may not work as well for that example. I think more likely we, you know, people will be looking at the types of patients that need that extra support, that need that kind of connection to help them understand how to improve their health, both from a physical but as well as from a wider determinant area. So I know for our area, we're looking at patients that, you know, come to us on a frequent basis that we can't really seem to help if i'm being honest you know that they bounce around a lot and and have lots of issues that just don't seem to be sorted and there are definitely some patients where those aren't due to medical concerns and we we need to look at why that's happening and and i guess they're potential patients that we can look at to try and help them because is it the other stuff that's causing them to bounce around the system it's not specifically their physical health it may be the other things you know social health mental health that kind of thing I think the roles you're potentially looking at that may be more useful to look at are things like the pharmacists, like the first contact physios, like the first contact mental health workers, where actually if that problem you have, you know, say if you, for example, tripped up, injured your back and, you know, low trauma kind of injury, you know, you're in discomfort, you're clearly having problems, you know, seeing me for that whilst I can probably deal with that am I potentially the best person when if we've got a first contact physio who can assess your injury you know, look at what, how much of an impact it's having on you, give you the physiotherapy advice in terms of how to improve that moving forward and also give you advice on simple things like analgesia and, and, you know, what you can expect. Is that not potentially a better outcome rather than seeing me having some of that and then me telling you you probably need to see a physio as well to deal with the other bits, you know? How do you go around promoting these roles to patients? I think education is a massive part of it and changing the mindset of people. I think a lot particularly where i work a lot of the population still has this view of my gp and whilst that has real value and i've talked about continuity i think we also need to recognize that the concept of my gp may not be effective everywhere so for example i i work in my practice i work six sessions in my practice so that basically means you know three whole days i don't do quite three whole days but i split them over four but i'm not here all day every day i can't be if i'm being honest i will burn out and i can guarantee you any gp who's currently working all day every day that's dangerous in our current modern health care system and that's one of the reasons why we have so few gps at this point because it is so overbearing and stressful but in terms of seeing me people won't be able to see me specifically so therefore we need to figure out ways that people can have continuity and that's where the record keeping that's where the interoperability can help because then your team your practice can offer you healthcare and it's understanding that concept that you are now seeing the practice you're seeing the medical team looking after you not the individual there are definitely going to be situations where that's not the case where sub you know super specialist areas and sometimes seeing the right person can be so much more beneficial because they know that story they don't you know they know you yeah but that generally works much better for the more chronic health issues rather than the urgent health issues but there's always going to be an exception with that in an ideal world, what would primary health care look like to you? 
I think primary care would look like that we can access systems better. So having some sort of systems in place that means that patients who have queries about their health can navigate that a bit more effectively and be given advice and potentially even options of what they need to look at. So if you have you know, an acute health issue, something's come up, a cough or a cold, and you're concerned about this, being given options of what you need to consider to help guide you to what you need to do. That may or may not involve having an appointment with your clinician. Fine. If it does, okay. If it doesn't, well, you know, is there a reason why you've been given this advice? Consider that. I think the other part is having the interoperability in the systems, allowing us to work more effectively. So much of our systems between within primary care, but also between primary and secondary care, don't work and because they don't work people bounce around the system you know patients not knowing when their appointments at the secondary care place may be and then they keep coming back to their general practice because their health issues and improving whilst we still don't even know when they're going to be seen by the hospital consultants about their you know new health care issue that creates anxiety it creates problems it creates issues with how they're working the time frames do need to be looked at you know often i see people who injure themselves who just simply an access to a physio to help you know improve you know, their musculoskeletal injury. Locally, our physio services were running on a six-week waiting list. You know, what is that person going to do for six weeks while they wait to physiotherapy? Yeah, people say go privately. Where I work, a lot of patients do not have that option. They physically could not afford to do that. So then they're looking at potentially six weeks off work. What's more impactful to our system, our population, that person being off for six weeks and the implications of that, or them having the contact a lot sooner, getting sorted, back to it, back to being functioning, back to looking after their family, back to, you know, being effective. What do you love about your job? I love the connections that we make. In terms of seeing patients, the, the relationships and the stories that you get from patients are unbelievably amazing. Being able to offer that better personal kind of level of care and that continuity of care, hands down, you know, seeing the journeys of, of patients. I've been here, like I said, over seven years. I've seen children when they were babies now running around my room kept causing chaos. You know, I've helped several family members go through various different stages of their life, both good and bad. And actually that's that narrative, that, that richness is something that I value significantly. I do actually, I'm one of these weird people that like change. I like managing change. And actually the, the change that you see in general practice, which is unbelievably <laughs> amounts of it. I do enjoy some of it. Don't get me wrong, there are definitely parts of it I hate, like many people do. But that also gives me a challenge and then something that I enjoy dealing with. And looking at systems, if I'm being honest, you know, I'm one of these weird people that actually like to try and change systems because I think it can be useful if you do it and if you do it effectively. And trying to find that way of doing it is something that keeps me passionate. So you, I would consider you as quite like a young leader. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, I like being called young. Yeah, you are. How have you, so this question comes up a lot. I've got, I know GPs that want to progress, mm -hmm. but they don't have the experience and the credibility to be able to take on additional roles. Mm -hmm. As somebody that has achieved that, what, ad what advice would you give to not just a GP, but somebody that wants to, wants to help and influence change and wants to step into that leadership position? How do they do that? I'd say go for it, first of all. People, so, so part of the challenge you're talking about is imposter syndrome, and I think that affects everybody to any degree. You know, whether you're Tim Cook giving his presentation is, you know, the iPhone plenary and stuff, I guarantee you he'll still have some elements of imposter syndrome despite being, you know, the CEO of the, one of the most lucrative companies in the world. But it's recognizing that nothing's impossible because even the people that are doing the amazing stuff right now, the big leaders and all that kind of stuff, 
they started off somewhere and you have to kind of start on that journey. The second part I would definitely say is have a good network with you. So, you know, people from your tribe, fortunate that I've got an amazingly supportive family, especially the wife, very understanding as well. Um, I'm sure she's listening to this. But in addition, you know, having those colleagues and those peers that, that stimulate you as well as challenge you. And I think that's the part that some people often forget. It's great to have support to people who agree with what you're doing and can give you, you know, feedback and that kind of stuff. But you also need those people that will stand up and challenge you and say, are you doing the right thing? Is that the best way to do it? You know, that kind of thing. Because that actually, I think, is more helpful than anything else in terms of navigating where you want to take yourself forward. And then last thing is making sure that you structure things in a way that means you can do it. And what I mean by that is particularly when it comes to roles, myself included, hands down, we are often really bad at saying no to things. And we will often say yes to this, 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 and this. And then you end up taking on so many roles sometimes that it just becomes too much for you. And particularly in our modern world, I think we do need to recognize things like resilience, like burnout, like doing too much. And I can guarantee you almost every GP across this country will accept this as a, an issue that we, we take on more than we should do sometimes. And there needs to be a way for you to say no. So I think if you are looking at taking on you know significant roles, particularly in terms of leadership, it can't be in addition to everything else that you're doing, you need to sometimes look at what you're doing and saying, well, if I'm going to take on this thing that's going to be, it's going to take me time. I need to make sure I'm getting some of that time back because otherwise the things that suffer then is things that keep you happy, that keep you joyful, your family time, your pleasure time, that kind of stuff. And it's making sure that doesn't encroach because our connected world can really do that to you, unfortunately. So could I ask, how do we get more people, so outside of the people that want to, mm -hmm. How do we get more people to say, yes, I will do my bit. I might not be, might not be a lead, you know, like in a, a large leadership position, but actually mm -hmm. we do need more people to step in and say, yes, I'll yeah. do this. I'll do that on top of other things. How do we get more people to say yes? I think, first of all, it's finding the people that have an interest. And that doesn't have to be, you know, a burning desire. It has to be, you know, it can be somebody that's even got a peaking interest in that kind of area. And I think it's also on the leaders themselves to recognize and identify these people and support them and bring them through. Because actually, we can't, you know, you can't have the same person doing the same role for 20 odd years because that's just completely pointless and useless in, in my view. Because where, where is the innovation? Where is the change? Even if that individual reinvents themselves on a regular basis, you're still getting those root ideas and, and concepts and that kind of stuff so bringing the other generation with us is vitally important and that's why i'm so supportive of schemes like the next gen gp thing that's been running for the past couple of years now and that i was even a part of that is looking at doing that sharing the stories of leaders to help encourage other people to take on roles and again leadership doesn't have to be you know in charge of a big organization or something like that. it can be something as simple as changing something within your own clinical team it can be something as simple as leading a education group in your area that can literally be a meeting between three people if you wanted it to be you know it's taking those small steps and also making sure it's something that you enjoy doing because don't just do it because you feel you have to otherwise you will end up hating it make sure it's something that means something to you you mentioned you love leading change and looking at systems mm -hmm. what one piece of advice would you give to somebody supporting a large-scale change find the person that is most likely to say no and find out what their challenges are with it because if you can convince that one person you can convince anyone who has recently said no to you i'm not going to give any stories on that <laughs> but i recognize that whenever you have a change to make it is 
no point just highlighting the good. You need to recognize that every change has a negative outcome for somebody. And actually, the best way to make a change possible is to recognize that, identify it, and look at why that's a challenge. Because if you do that, you can then understand the problems around it and the resistance around it. And that may actually inform how you do the change so much more effectively than just plugging on about the positiveness. So a clear example for me would be, you know, again, video consultations is seen as a, a huge thing for general practice that's going to happen. If, you know, we've got some leaders in that. We've got some people that feel that, you know, that that can't happen still, you know, that it shouldn't happen. You know, actually, I think we're in the middle in terms of what we need to do. But in terms of making that happen, you need to look at all the challenges that each individual place is going to have in terms of doing that. Is it down to infrastructure? Is it down to workforce? Is it down to workflow? How that works with your practice? Because the worst thing you can do is just bolt it onto practice. And then it's another information stream that GPs are having to deal with that's on top of everything they're already doing. And they feel more burnt out. The clinical team firms more burnt out. And then it just doesn't work. You need to look at where this is going to slot in in every aspect of what you do from the reception team, from the practice managers, from the IT people, from the clinicians themselves and the GPs. And if you do it that way and find out what people's concerns and anxieties are, combine that with the patient perspective of how this is going to work, because there's no point having it if the patients aren't going to use it or don't even know about it. And then that will work so much more effectively than just simply saying we now offer video consultations. You know, what does that mean? Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. If people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? So as I said, I often have commented, I've got the internet plugged into my brain. So social media is actually probably one of the best places to get a hold of me. So I'm on Twitter at DrGandalf52 or my EGP Learning platform, which is at EGP Learning or egplearning.co.uk and all my contacts and stuff are available on there as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and we hope that you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, we would love it if you left us an iTunes review or if you comment, like and share it on our social media channels. You can find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn, just look for Tara Humphrey. So the Business of Healthcare podcast is being brought to you by THC Primary Care. We are a project management company specialising in the development of primary care networks, GP federations and training hubs. If you need support or you are looking for advice on how to progress one of your initiatives, please drop us an email so I can arrange a call with you so we can discuss this further. Our email is admin at thcprimarycare.co.uk. We've been helping primary care networks with their development plans, helping them to make the most of their network meetings, sharing training resources. We've had questions like what do we include in a project plan? We have implemented network-based contracts across GP federations. We also support the day-to-day operational management of training hubs and have also got experience in setting them up from scratch. If we can't help you, we definitely know some people who will be able to help you, so please do get in touch. And that's just to remind you, our email address is admin at thc primarycare.co.uk or come and find us on www.thcprimarycare.co.uk and in the meantime please tune in to the next episode of the business of healthcare podcast <laughs>